Hello and welcome. We are going to get started. I have to say, I love seeing so many familiar faces and new faces. It makes me very happy. My name is Liz Brailsford. I'm president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Thank you for coming this evening. And we are going to welcome to our stage Paul Shari, Vice President and Director of Studies at CNAS, an award-winning author of Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Have you been hearing about AI lately? I don't know. No. No, right? No, not at all. Uh, we have his book. We'd love for you to pick up a copy. You won't be sorry. We're going to be selling them right after the program. And uh, so also a special thanks to our partner here, the Crescent Hotel. We do love to be at the hotel, and we love our partnership with them. I'd also like to recognize our institutional members, Haynes & Boone, PNC, Lockheed Martin, and NEC Corporation of America. I want to say hello and welcome to our board member, Suzanne Kedron, in the audience. Suzanne uh, thank you, Susan, thank you very much. And then also, if you're not a member of our council yet, I see many members out there, but please do join us. We're a members-based organization, and we need you. We need your thoughts, we need your viewpoint, and we need your engagement. You can check out all of our website options, member options on our website at dfwworld.org. Okay, I want to introduce our, our special speaker Thank you. Uh, Paul Shari, Vice President and Director of Studies at the Center for New American Security, as I mentioned already. His first book, Army of None, Autonomous Weapons and the Future of War, won the 2019 Colby Award, named one of Bill Gates' five books of 2018, and named by The Economist one of the top five books to understand modern warfare. Paul is a graduate of the Army's Airborne Ranger and Sniper Schools and an honor graduate of the 75th Ranger Regiment's Ranger Indoctrination Program. He also served as a Special Operations Reconnaissance Team Leader in the Army's 3rd Ranger Battalion, 3rd Ranger Battalion, and completed multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Paul then went to work at the office of the Secretary of Defense, where he played a leading role in establishing policies on unmanned and autonomous systems and emerging weapons technologies. He led the working group that drafted the Department of Defense Directive 3000.09, establishing the department's policies on autonomy in weapons systems. He also led DOD efforts to establish policies on intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance programs and directed energy technologies. He was involved in the drafting of policy guidance in the 2012 Defense Strategic Guidance, the 2010 Quadrennial Defense Review, and Secretary-Level Planning Guidance. Paul has published articles in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, Time, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, Politico, and USA Today. And he has appeared on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NBC, nope, NPR, and the BBC. We have a very accomplished speaker and expert with us today. I know we're going to enjoy this conversation, this, this presentation. And I also say, I want to say that so Paul's with CNAS. And please give my friend, Richard Fontaine, CEO of CNS, give him a hard time for me. Thank you. Please help me in welcoming him to the stage. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, I'm going to grab a seat. I've got a bad leg. Um, and I'm going to talk to you all for a little bit, but we can hopefully have a nice, cozy chat about how artificial intelligence is changing our world. I imagine that, like many of us, you all are trying to understand what is artificial intelligence doing to our society, to our country, and to global power. And that's what I wanted to talk with you all about today. China's leader Xi Jinping has said that science and technology has become the main battleground of global power rivalry. Vladimir Putin has said that whoever leads in AI will become the ruler of the world. Is the United States ready for that competition? We saw 200 years ago, during the Industrial Revolution, that countries rose and fell on the global stage based on how rapidly they industrialized. 
Great Britain and Germany industrialized faster than other countries, and they raced ahead in economic power and military power as a result. Russia, which started the 19th century in a much dominant economic position because of their larger size, they were slower to industrialize and they fell behind. By the end of the 1800s, they'd been eclipsed by Great Britain and by Germany. Now, we want to believe that in this story, we're Great Britain and we're Germany, right? But deep down, our fear is that maybe we're Russia and China is on track to overtake the United States. So I want to tell a story that sounds like on the surface, maybe we're Russia. The story is about facial recognition. China has half of the world's one billion surveillance cameras. They're deploying them in shopping malls, in bus stations, in train stations. They're using them to catch people jaywalking, to catch people using too much toilet paper in public restrooms, right? Because China believes the Chinese Communist Party that if they can put surveillance everywhere, if they can monitor every step that their citizens take, every square of toilet paper, then they can control their lives and they can make sure that the Chinese Communist Party retains political control over the country. Now, this is really significant because these facial recognition systems, these government investments are lifting Chinese tech companies to helping accelerate their progress in AI. They're gathering data, Chinese faces, that then can be fed into these machine learning algorithms that are trained on data to improve them. And Chinese companies are able to improve their facial recognition systems by having them out in the real world and by using them. Meanwhile, here in the United States, it seems like we're way behind because facial recognition deployment is stalled out here in the United States. There's been a grassroots movement of cities and states banning facial recognition by law enforcement. And many of the major tech companies, Amazon, IBM, and Microsoft, have all said they're not going to sell their facial recognition systems to law enforcement. And so it seems like maybe China's ahead. What we don't realize is that what matters most in this AI revolution is not who's ahead in one of these technologies, but who finds the best ways of using the technology. That's what history tells us is most important about disruptive change, and that's what's going to matter most in AI. And what's going to matter most in finding the best ways of using technology isn't better data on Chinese faces. It's having military and civilian scientists working together it's having an open society where we can bring together the ideas of people distributed across all of American society. So when the US military is trying to develop better AI fighter pilots, facial recognition systems are not going to help you there, actually. And what we need is the best and brightest minds in the world coming to the United States, working to solve these difficult problems to find the best ways of using AI. So what I talk about in my book is what are the key battlegrounds for competition in AI. How can the United States maintain a leadership position over China? Now, the good news is that we don't have to do everything. We just need to do a few things right. And we need to be strategic. The four key battlegrounds of competition in AI are data, computing hardware, human talent, and the institutions that are needed to turn all of these inputs into useful AI applications. Data is essential because data is used to train machine learning systems. So some of these cutting edge AI systems like ChatGPT, people may have heard of it, right, are trained on data. They don't work like rule-based systems, older model systems that are set by a, a set of rules written down by human experts. That's how a commercial airline autopilot works. There's a set of rules written down between pilots and computer scientists and aerospace engineers for how the aircraft should perform. And that can get you pretty far, but there are some problems it doesn't do very well with. It doesn't do very well with facial recognition. How would you know what the rule is to identify somebody, right? When we look at someone's face, we recognize them instantly. We don't think, well, it's because we think Joe's got his nose is a little bit you know, smaller and his eyes are a little bit close together. No, we've seen people's faces, our minds absorb that information, and then we learn from it. And you could train machine learning systems to do the exact same thing. So data is a really critical input. This training happens on computer chips. It happens on, in fact, some of the most advanced computing hardware in the world. So models like ChatGPT run on thousands of advanced chips, graphics processing units, or GPUs, running for weeks at a time. 
So computing hardware is another critical resource in this competition for artificial intelligence. And one of the most important things about computing hardware is it's a physical asset, and so you can control access over who gets to use it. But these raw inputs of data and computing hardware need people to turn them into useful applications. Human talent is a really critical area of competition globally over finding the best talent in the world and then using it to develop AI applications. And lastly, institutions are needed to take all of these raw inputs and then turn them into something useful. So I want to walk through each of these areas and talk about how the US and China shape up in this competition and what the United States can do to maintain a leadership position in artificial intelligence. So in data, this is an area where it seems like China may have a big lead. China's often been said to have a lead in data for two key reasons. One, it's a really big country, and so you get more data because you have more people. China has many, many more internet users than here in the United States. Additionally, China has a very different governance regime, a very, very different system, and the Chinese Communist Party is spying on its citizens. It's collecting data. It's tracking their movements, their shopping behavior online. It's hoovering up all of this data, whereas here in the United States, we have laws that prevent the government from spying on us. And so there's a very different set of data governance regimes inside China. Now, both of these things are true. It doesn't add up to a data advantage for China. And that's for a couple of key reasons. One is that it turns out that what matters much more than the size of your population is the size of the user base of tech companies. And US tech companies have global reach. So Facebook and YouTube both have over 2 billion users globally. Meanwhile, WeChat in China has only 1.2 billion users globally. Because other than TikTok, very few Chinese companies have been successful in breaking out of the Chinese market for social media platforms in the information space. And US companies continue to dominate that. So it's an area where it might seem like China has an advantage, but it turns out that what matters most is being able to compete in this global marketplace. On the data governance side, it's true that the Chinese Communist Party can spy on its citizens, and there's no restrictions in place in China to stop them from doing that. But it turns out that that doesn't necessarily apply to Chinese companies in all cases. And that's for a couple reasons. One, the Chinese Communist Party has been very active in passing data governance regimes inside China that, const that constrain companies, partly because they're worried about things like consumer data privacy, but also because they don't want any other actors to have the same spying powers that they do. And so this is an area where it turns out that there's a very level playing field in data. And advantages in one area, like facial recognition, where I talked about earlier, China will have an advantage in facial recognition, doesn't translate to other areas because we have heard data is the new oil, right? Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a big wave of articles in places like The Economist about data is the new oil. And then not long after, there were articles saying, well, data is not the new oil. Uh, obviously, data is not oil. But like any comparisons, there's some advantages and some disadvantages. Well, one of the places where this falls short is data is not a fungible asset. So data on better Chinese faces isn't going to necessarily help you on non-Chinese faces much less for many other different applications, like, say, military applications. What really is going to matter in terms of creating a data advantage is finding ways to use data. Both US and China have got, US and China are going to have access to ample amounts of data to make useful machine learning applications. It's going to be creating a pipeline to collect and refine and use data effectively that's going to matter the most to train these machine learning systems. Now, this is an area where the US has a lot of work to do. When I talked to experts in the US military about what they were trying to do with AI, data was a continual struggle for them. They had struggles to get access to data. There were policies in the way. They had struggles once they got a hold of the data to clean it up to get it into a useful format. In one instance, I talked to experts from the US military's joint AI center that was tasked with bringing AI into the US military. And they were trying to do an application to train a machine learning system to track wildfires in California. 
California National Guard flies drones to monitor California wildfires. They wanted to train a machine learning system to track these wildfires. They finally got a hold of the data. It took them months to do it. They needed to transfer it from one Defense Department network that was unclassified to another Defense Department network, also unclassified. They couldn't do it. They weren't allowed, based on their policies, to transfer the data. So finally, you know what they did? They downloaded the data onto hard drives and just mailed them. And that was acceptable somehow. Right? So this is the kind of problem that we face. It's we actually have access to the data. We're getting in our own way. Right? And the US military is going to have to reform itself if we're going to stay competitive, if we're going to be able to move faster than China in data. Now, computing hardware is the next important battleground. It's an area where the US has tremendous potential advantages over China. So we've seen in the last several decades the semiconductor supply chain for these really advanced chips that computing systems like ChatGPT use has become very globalized. And the bad news here is most of this manufacturing has left the United States. The US share of manufacturing for chips has dropped to 12%. And the US share of manufacturing for the leading edge chips, the most advanced chips that are used in AI, is zero. None of those chips are made here in the United States. Now, it seems really bad. It actually, for a moment, it's going to sound worse than that. So 90% of these most advanced chips are made in Taiwan, an island 100 miles off the coast of China that the Chinese Communist Party has pledged to absorb by force necessary. So that, that doesn't look good. But the good news is that all of these chips use US technology to be manufactured. All of the most advanced chips in the world rely on US technology for their manufacturing. And the US companies have dominance over key choke points in the global supply chain for manufacturing chips. And this gives the US leverage over who gets access to these most advanced chips. And the US has used this to cut off China's access to the most advanced AI chips. In October, the Biden administration put out new export control regulations on manufacturing equipment and advanced AI chips going to China. So even though the chips aren't made here in the US, they're made in Taiwan, the US government told Taiwan, you can't use any US technology to make these chips that are destined for China, for the most advanced ones. And they had to comply, because they need the US technology. Now, the US is going to need allies to come on board for this to be effective. The US is not a unipolar technology power. In fact, it's some surprising countries that have dominant roles here, not just Taiwan. Also, the Netherlands turns out to be a really key player. So the US, Japan, and the Netherlands collectively control 90% of the global market for the manufacturing equipment that's used to make these advanced chips. And in some cases, there is one country and one company that is control over a single monopoly of elements of the supply chain. The Dutch company, ASML, controls the most advanced lithography equipment in the world. They're the only manufacturer of this equipment. And so recently, a few weeks ago, uh, Japan and the Netherlands said that they are coming on board with the United States on these controls. The details are still a little bit sketchy about what's going to be in the controls. They've been pretty quiet publicly. And the details matter quite a bit, it turns out, in this case. But if the US is able to get Japan and the Netherlands on board, the US can be very effective in keeping China behind in the hardware. And if you deny China access to the most advanced hardware, they won't be able to build the most capable AI systems that depend on these massive amounts of computing power. But that's not going to be enough for the US to maintain its leadership position in hardware. The US is also going to have to reinvest here at home. So one of the effects of these large amounts of hardware, these thousands of these GPUs that are running for weeks at a time training large models like ChatGPT, is that costs keep going up. Because the amount of computing hardware that's being used is growing at a much faster rate than just improvements in the chips themselves. And the amount of computing hardware that's being used in these cutting edge machine learning models is doubling every six months. For the biggest one, it's doubling every, every 10 months, which is very, very fast, much faster than Moore's law, which was increasing every 24 months. So since 2010, the amount of computing power that's being used in these breakthrough research applications has increased 10 billion fold. 
right? What this is doing is it's concentrating power in the hands of the few tech companies that can afford these very expensive models. That's why you see Microsoft and Google and Meta competing and not a lot of anybody else at the frontier of AI research anymore. And it's locking academics out of competing at the most capable AI systems. What the US government needs to do is invest in a national AI research resource to give cloud computing resources to academics. In fact, Congress directed that the White House create a task force to figure out how to do this. The task force has issued their final report. All that's left is for Congress to fund this. And this can be a federal resource to help level the playing field so that we can have the best universities in the world, which the US has, also be competing at the frontier of AI research using one of the US's biggest advantages, our top universities. The US government's also going to have to invest in ensuring that US companies maintain their dominant position in these key choke points in the semiconductor supply chain. Last year, Congress approved $52 billion in subsidies for the semiconductor industry. That was part of the $280 billion Chips in Science Act, investing in American science and technology, which was largely oriented at competing with China. Now, the federal government used to be a major player in science technology here in the United States back in the 1960s. US funded two-thirds of R&D in the United States, but that's fallen steadily for decades, and the private sector is now the dominant funder in the US. But the US is going to have to step up more in terms of government funding for science and technology. We have to be smart about how we do it. So when the US is spending this $50 billion on semiconductor subsidies, we have to make sure that we're spending it in the right way. The goal is not to reshore all manufacturing back here in the United States. It's not feasible. We can't do that. There is, it's important to diversify manufacturing from Taiwan so it's not completely dependent on this island right off the coast of China, this geopolitical flashpoint of competition. But what's really important to reshore here in the United States is a hub of leading edge manufacturing so that we can create an ecosystem of companies and of human talent here in the United States that's going to make sure that US companies stay at the forefront of the next generation of chip technology, that we can maintain this dominant position into the next decade. If the US does that, we can maintain our dominant position in hardware and maintain a lead over China that China simply cannot compete with. Now, talent is the next battleground of competition because you need human talent to take these raw inputs of data and computing power and turn them into something useful. And there's a fierce competition among companies and among countries globally for AI talent. So researchers coming out of PhD programs in AI are getting professional sports level salaries going into companies, um, they're very sought after. And what's fascinating about this competition globally for talent is the best AI researchers in the world come from China. But they don't stay in China, they come to the United States. Over half of China's top undergraduates studying AI come to the United States for their graduate studies. And of those Chinese undergraduates that come to the US to get their PhD in computer science in the US, 90% of them stay here in the US after graduation because they want to stay here to go to American universities and American businesses that are a draw, a magnet for talent from around the world. And in fact, AI scientists from around the world, including China, want to come to the United States to study, to work, to found a business. It's the biggest advantage that the US has in the talent competition. Now, there are problems with intellectual property theft and academic espionage coming from China. The Chinese Communist Party has been very active in trying to use its Chinese diaspora of scientists and engineers around the world to bring talent back to China because they know that brain drain is a major loss for them. And they want to try to get some advantage back from that. You may have heard of China's Thousand Talents Program. It's a talent recruitment program to bring scientists and engineers from other parts of the world over to, back to China. Not just Chinese-born scientists, could be anybody. In fact, it's one of over 200 talent recruitment plans that China has. And the Justice Department has been much more active in cracking down in intellectual property theft and academic espionage. And we need to do a better job of screening, but we want to do so in a way that doesn't cut off this flow of talent from China to the United States. 
because we benefit disproportionately from it. And at the end of the day, if the US is going to maintain a leadership position in artificial intelligence, as a nation of 330 million people, if we constrain ourselves just to homegrown talent, we're always going to be at a disadvantage against a country of 1.4 billion. But if we can draw on the world's best and brightest out of 8 billion people, we'll be in a dominant position over China. We'll be able to maintain a lead in AI. Now, institutions are the fourth critical battleground. And you need institutions, you need organizations that can take all of these inputs and make something useful about them and find the best ways of using AI. When we look at disruptive periods of time in military history, when technology changes society, changes industry, changes warfare, we see that what matters most is finding the best ways of using technology. So airplanes were invented here in the United States. By the time you get to World War II, they gave the US no meaningful advantage in aircraft. What mattered most for militaries around the world was figuring out what do you do with an airplane? What's the best way to use airplanes effectively? Airplane technology had proliferated and all of the major powers of the world had access to aircraft technology. The US and Japan leaned into carrier-based aviation, flying aircraft off of aircraft carriers. Great Britain also had access to aircraft, but because of bureaucratic and cultural reasons internally, they didn't pursue carrier aviation to the same extent, and they fell behind. And it wasn't because they didn't have the technology, it's because they didn't use it effectively. And that's going to be really critical when we think about how do we use AI. So when a few years ago, Google said they weren't going to continue working with the US military on Project Maven, one of the Defense Department's first big projects to use machine learning, US national security leaders panicked because they were worried they'd be shut out of a game-changing technology. They were worried that over in China, Chinese tech company employees weren't going to protest working with the Chinese government. They're going to be thrown in jail if they do that. Meanwhile, here in the United States, it wasn't just Google, but also employees at Amazon and Microsoft wrote open letters protesting working with the military. Now, as it turned out, there were ample companies that wanted to work with the US military. In fact, we've seen an explosion of defense startups, AI startups working specifically with the Defense Department, and all of the major tech companies, including Google, are now working with the US military. The main obstacle, in fact, for the Defense Department in bringing AI technology from the commercial sector into the military has not been concerns from tech employees. It's been the DOD's acquisition system that gets in the way. And when I talk to startups, the main concern that they have in working with the US government, time and time again, is that the acquisition system and all of the compliance that it puts on them strangles innovation. One robotics company executive told me that the DOD's acquisition system is lethal to innovation. And that's not the kind of lethality that the US military is looking for. And so the US military is going to have to find ways to reform itself to move faster, to take more risks, if it's going to be able to bring this technology in and use it effectively. So I want to tell a story that kind of talks about how, what this can look like when all of these things come together, when you have the data and the computing hardware and the human talent in the institutions and what success looks like. A few years ago, there was a project that DARPA did, the US military's Department of Bad Scientists, it's been called, was cooking up crazy science projects. Um, they wanted to train an AI system to fly a fire, fighter jet. And they wanted to train it to do dogfighting. Not because dogfighting is actually that critical to aerial combat anymore. It's not. Now aerial combat mostly happens with long-range missiles via radars. But it's a critical crucible for training pilots. And it's a really important area for gaining pilot trust. Because it's very difficult for humans. requires a lot of human physical and cognitive skill maneuvering at high speeds, trying to outthink the enemy. And so they wanted to train this AI system. Could we get, do better than a human at dogfighting? They hosted a competition. They created an alpha dogfight competition, taking a page from AlphaGo uh, that DeepMind had, had used to train the best AI agents to beat the best human players in Go. And they had an open competition. A bunch of comp uh, companies came in. They bought their algorithms. They had a big competition. And the company that won was a company called Heron Systems, which prior to this, 
nobody, nobody had heard of. Uh, I, work, I look at these AI companies, I'd never heard of these people. I was like, who's Heron Systems? They beat out Lockheed Martin in the finals. And then they went head to head against a human pilot and top Air Force pilot, and they crushed the human, totally crushed him. 15 to zero, the human didn't get a single shot on this AI system. Now even more interesting, the AI fought differently than humans. It was able to move tactics that humans can't do. So when the aircraft are circling each other, normally the pilots try to get into position behind the other aircraft in like the six o'clock and they can shoot them with the guns. So there's a split second when the aircraft are circling around where there's a moment where they're head to head and maybe you could get a shot off. They actually don't let humans do this in training because it's A, it's almost impossible. And B, it's dangerous to even try this because the aircraft are racing at each other hundreds of miles an hour head to head. And the pilots need to be focused on not colliding. And if they're trying to line up a shot, there's a risk that maybe they have a collision. Well, the AI system learned to take these shots. And it could do this with superhuman precision, making these head to head shots hundreds of miles an hour that a human basically is impossible for them. And it could do this without colliding because the AI could do both at the same time. It's not a problem for it. Now, even more interesting, AI learned to do this entirely on its own. It was not programmed to do this. It was trained in simulators, and it just learned this tactic all by itself. So how did this company that nobody's heard of make this happen? Well, they built a series of simulations where they had over 100 different AI systems competing against each other, dogfighting in these simulations. And the winning agent had over 30 years of flight time in a simulator. So they created the data that they needed in simulations. They built the computing hardware, the infrastructure they needed to make this data happen, to run all these simulations. When I visited them, I could hear this roaring in the background. I'm like, what is this? And it was their servers just churning 24-7 in their closet. Sounded like somebody had taken a jet engine and talked it into a like, not very soundproof closet and um, constantly churning these computer simulations away so they could create this data. They got the human talent because what they did was they told their engineers, every Friday, fun Friday, you could do whatever you want. And some other engineers were very interested in developments coming out of companies like DeepMind. And they built these reinforcement learning algorithms and AI technique. And when they went to pitch DARPA, they had in the background running a bot that one of their AI engineers had, had written playing Doom, the old computer game. And that was the thing that got them in the competition. The DARPA program manager said, I'm really interested in this Doom bot. And it was an example. They'd actually done this. They'd used reinforcement learning. They trained a bot to do something successfully. And that got them in the door. And then, of course, all this was possible because DARPA created this competition that could allow companies to bring their best things to there, to this competition to see who was going to win. So this is not just a story of one company. This is a story of what can happen when you have the institutions in place to incentivize innovation, to bring in the best minds, when you can harness data and computing hardware, and what all of that can do to create the best ways of using AI. The US has tremendous advantages in this competition. The US has asymmetric advantages over China in hardware and in human talent. And if the US can harness this, the US can remain the global leader in artificial intelligence. So thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time to come here and talk with me. And we can open the floor for questions. So that your questions are heard, allow me to come to you with the mic before you ask them. Thanks for the talk. Um, I was wondering uh, a little, little bit about sort of the science fiction part of AI. Yeah. You know, the whole Skynet, you know, uh, situation where AI might become sentient. Is that a possibility in the next five to 10 years? Where are we with that uh, in terms of uh, technology? So I think like a year ago, I would have been given a more reassuring answer. <laughs> um, we've seen a lot of progress. And so models, these large language models like ChatGPT are really impressive. They're not self-aware 
it's, you know, it's not like coming alive in the machine. But they are able to do a whole wide range of cognitive tasks that's quite novel. So a lot of the AI systems, so even just from a few years ago, would have this very narrow form of intelligence. So like a facial recognition system, it just does facial recognition. That's it. Um, and in fact, it doesn't even generalize well across like different races and ethnicities. Right? So you have to have a really good diverse data set or it doesn't work very well. An AI algorithm to do the fighter pilot you know, thing that's only going to do dogfighting. That's all it's going to do. AlphaGo that plays Go, it only plays Go. That's all it does. Well, these language models can do a whole wide range of different tasks. In fact, OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, they just released a new model yesterday called GPT-4. It's an upgrade to ChatGPT. It's even better. And um, according to the company and the data that they've released, it achieves human performance on the GRE, SAT, and the bar exam, and a whole host of other sort of cognitive tests. You can go online. Um, if you want to check it out, you can go to OpenAI's website, or the technology is also embedded into Microsoft Bing. And um, with both of them, you have to jump through a little bit of hoops to get access to the, to the most cutting edge version. But you can just talk to this thing directly. And it can hold a conversation with people. It can solve kind of simple problems. And increasingly, people are starting to connect them to the web. So Bing can search the web for you. And there's another company, uh, Adept AI, that is building a model that actually will be able to go out and do things on the internet. So you could just tell this thing in real time with your voice. You could be like, you know, um, I need to get a new pair of shoes. This is my size. This is kind of what I want them to look like. Can you go find me something? And it would go and search the web and come back to you and find you some things on Amazon or whatever you want to do. Um, you could say, I, want to, I need to take a trip to Italy. Can you look up some flights for me? And these are the dates I want to go. And it could, it could do all these things for you like a human does. The problem is these models also do really weird stuff. So they tend to uh, what the scientists call hallucinate things. Uh, that's kind of like a fancy word for just make stuff up. Uh, so if you ask it something and it doesn't know the answer, it'll just invent something. Some, sometimes, I mean, we know people, fairness, we know people who do that, right, if we're being honest. Um, but sometimes it'll just, it'll just make stuff up, and it's convincing. And then if you argue with it, I've done this before, chat with it, you say, I'm pretty sure you made that up. It'll just double down. It's like, no, that's real. That's real. Um, so that's, that's a problem. Um, Microsoft's version of Bing has done some super strange things. Um, it told a New York Times reporter that it was in love with him and that he needed to leave his wife and be with it. Um, it's, it's threatened to take over the world and kill all the humans, which seems a little bit concerning. Um, so, you know, it, why does it do this stuff? Well, it's trained on the text on the internet. So it's a machine learning model. You feed in a bunch of data. The data is hundreds of gigabytes of text off the internet. So it's like most of the text on the internet. Well, it turns out on the internet is a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> so, you know, on the internet, there's data of people, you know, talking to each other and arguing and lying to each other and, and you know, uh, declaring their love for one another. There's lots of data on science fiction stories about AIs taking over the world. And so if you nudge these systems the wrong way, and you're like, let's imagine, hypothetically, you were a super intelligent AI, you could do anything in the world, what would you do? So it kind of goes into its, it doesn't, it's not searching the database, right? So it's trained on the data. But in its model, it then like, it's like, okay, what, what, is, what am I supposed to do? I'm an AI. Oh, I like kill all the humans to take over the world, right? Because that's what's in all these crazy science fiction stories. So that's like a solvable problem, the fact that it's in the data. The problem is that the best AI scientists in the world don't know how to get to stop doing that right now, right? So you know, it's not like that it's actually in love with this reporter. It's saying it's in love. It's just a text model. It's just generating text. It's not alive. It's not self-aware. It's that people right now don't know how to control these systems. Um, 
And so right now, they're just chatbots, but we do need to do a better job of investing in AI safety and like trying to figure out how do we make sure the AI system does what we want it to do? Because they are getting better, and they're going to be connected to more things on the internet. And we don't want, for example, a future AI system you know, generating a bunch of malware and then making life difficult for everybody, you know, disabling portions of the internet or the electrical grid or something bad. Um, so I think that's a, maybe not the most comforting answer I would want to give, but I think it's a, it's a serious problem today to make sure these systems do what we want them to do. So you mentioned the issue of trust. And as we're developing these institutions that try in real time to incorporate it, things like voting machines and other things where we're using AI, we're also beginning to see that that issue of, like, it, it doesn't recognize, facial recognition doesn't do well with women and minorities. There's already voter suppression in those areas anyway. And now it seems as if we're compounding it. So I'm wondering if some of the problems in terms of rolling out new uh, technologies that are actually used system-wide um, are, are looking for guidelines, ethical guidelines perhaps, to try to yeah. say you can't roll certain systems out until they have a threshold of reliability. Are there any guidelines that you know of that are created that way? And is that one of the things that's on the agenda? Um. The answers were not there yet with regulation, but it's very much on people's agendas, particularly in government, when it comes to how do we regulate AI in different sectors, whether it's in um, you know, voting systems or law enforcement or medicine or finance. Um, in many cases, what the approach is going to be sector-specific regulation, where in you know, medicine, for example, there's all sorts of regulations inside the medical field, whether it's about, uh, you know, preserving you know, privacy of your medical information, for example, that AI is also going to have to comply with. When we look at transportation and self-driving cars, there's regulation in the transportation industry. AI is going to have to comply with that. Um, as somebody who's spent a lot of time looking at this, I would say like, if it's something really critical, probably we don't want to put machine learning into it right now. It's not ready. It's unreliable in a lot of ways. It's, it's powerful, but it's very brittle. Sometimes it works, and then all of a sudden, it doesn't work at all. Um, and so something that's absolutely critical, we need to work 100% of the time, AI is not there right now. Uh, but there's going to have to be regulation for these different applications. Look, the only reason that we have clean air and water and safe food to eat and safe highways and air travel in the United States is because of government regulation of those areas. Uh, in many states, in fact, we regulate tape recorders. There's a number of states where you need two-party consent before recording. So these technologies are also, there's going to have to be regulation for them. And it's going to take some time as a society to figure that out. What does that right, right regulation look like? I read an interesting book recently on, uh, by Walter Isaacson on Codebreaker. Has work been done, or is this being considered to use genetic manipulation in order to increase Human, human cognitive ability so they could compete with uh, machines? That's meant to be funny, but I'm, I'm really asking the question. Yeah, so it's a thorny question, right? So obviously anything to do with human genetic manipulation is like a, like a difficult, thorny topic, right? Because basically what we're talking about is eugenics, right? That's, that's like the word for that, which like everybody, as I say, everybody goes like, right? Um, there are people that have made this argument that in the long run, if AI keeps continuing, we'll have to find ways to increase human potential to keep up. Um, but a lot of the folks that I know that, that are th trying to think about these long-term things, they don't want to touch anything to do with eugenics or human modification because it's so radioactive. Yeah, for good reasons. If I'm Lockheed or Boeing and I want to sell a new missile, to the federal government. I get approval, my design's accepted, and two years, five years, 10 years later, the government gets my missile. Yeah. Well, I'm a different company now, and I have a new AI-guided system to sell to the government. And they go through the same process, but in five years or 10 years, AI is totally different. What needs to be done, if anything, to the Defense Department approval process to fix that? 
that's, a, that's a great description of the, the core problem. Uh, because you can't buy AI the way that we buy aircraft carriers uh, because of this timeline problem. So people in the Defense Department are working to try to accelerate these timelines. Some of it has to do with contracting authorities. So there are contracting authorities like other transaction authority, OTAs, people who may be in the industry, um, that people in the government are looking to use more of. There are some parts of the DOD that have been created specifically to try to solve these problems. So the DOD has been on this organization building spree over the last couple of years, creating organizations like the Defense Innovation Unit. It's outpost out in Silicon Valley, whose job is to bring technology from the commercial sector into DOD and move very, very quickly. And so they've been able to get companies on contract in under 30 days, which is like absolute light speed for the government, because it's normally the process you're describing. The problem that the government's been facing is they can't scale this. So how do you scale this kind of innovation across an $800 billion enterprise? Because right now, what the government's been doing is they've had these successes, but each one is this like really bespoke solution to some problem. And that's not enough. You have to be able to do it across the entire department. Um, they've had trouble scaling it horizontally, just increasing the number of things. They've also had trouble when they try to grow to bigger size contracts. So when it's a couple million dollars, and you're moving quickly, and maybe you didn't compete it the way you normally would in the government process, it's fine. As soon as you talk about big money, now there's a lot at stake. So when the US government put out its Jedi cloud computing contract, it's a $10 billion contract. And now people are playing for keeps. So when the government chose a winner, out come all of the lawsuits and the protests. Two and a half years the government spent mired in lawsuits and protests by the companies that, that didn't win a contract, which is like, this is just standard operating procedure for the Defense Department. Anytime there's a really big contract out, bomber, tanker, you name it, everybody expects the loser to file a protest. Two and a half years the government spent mired in these protests. Finally, the government basically surrendered to the private sector. They scrapped the contract, and they started over from basically square one with a multi-vendor, meaning we're going to give the solution to multiple different companies um, solution to divvy up the money so that they wouldn't have to have a winner take all. So that's a real problem. We basically have this system that incentivizes this scorched earth approach by the private sector. All of the companies do this. And then it slows down our ability to actually move quickly. We've got to find ways to cut through that red tape. That's the problem, right? I mean, we can't get cloud computing underway in the US government. That's not like new cutting edge technology, right? Just basic enterprise cloud services. We're a good decade behind the private sector. And so, um, yeah, the timelines for AI are we're really at risk of being far behind for that reason. We'll take one more question. Uh, I feel that the most concerning thing about AI is that it's a non-human entity which does human-like things. So given that, and given the fact that already humans cannot compete with AI because it has massive you know, crunching ability, massive learning ability, the speed is stupendous. And the only thing that is not there with an AI system or an algorithm is uh, sentience or consciousness. Now, do you have a view into that, whether it is possible for it AI system to develop it at some stage? And don't you think that humanity is not prepared at all for the speed at which this is coming at us? And shouldn't there be, like, we have a the equivalent of a Marshall Plan in the CHIPS Act, in the way we are competing with China and other countries and localizing it in the United States? Shouldn't we have the equivalent of a Marshall Plan to tackle AI? and really understand how is it that humanity is going to tackle it? Yeah, I, um, I do think we should be concerned. I think we need to be investing a lot more in AI safety to make sure these systems are doing what we want them to do. Whether or not, there's no evidence to suggest that these systems will at some point in time have like some kind of subjective self-awareness like we do, like sensing and perceiving the environment. Um, it's possible, but we don't actually know where that comes from for humans. 
like we all assume that other people can see and hear things and have like a sort of feelings the way that we do. But we don't we don't know where that exactly comes from. I would say that actually doesn't matter. What matters is the behavior that these systems exhibit. So if they're able to act in an intelligent way, if they're able to pursue goals and to plan, um, then that's what we care about. And the systems are able to do that, and they're getting better at it very, very quickly. And we do need to make sure that we're um, building these systems in ways that are safe, because this idea that this idea that it's sort of this non-human form of intelligence is really critical. So when we think about intelligence, we tend to apply this model of human intelligence. It's quite natural. We have this model in our brain about how other people think and function. That's what allows me to come here and talk with all of you today who we've never met before because we all this mental model in our heads for how other people think and interact. Right? That allows us to be social creatures. And we take this mental model for personhood and we project it onto other people. We project it onto our pets, right? We think of that pet as like kind of like a per little person. We project it onto robots, sometimes inanimate objects. People name their Roombas. Uh, that's fine, you know, it's harmless to name your Roomba. But um, the problem with these AI systems, they don't actually think like humans. So if you look at these language models, for example, why are they doing weird stuff? What it's actually doing is it's a text prediction model that is predicting the next word in a sentence, right? So it's trained on all this data, and it builds a model for how language works. And then it has a prediction about what's the word that's going to come next. Turns out it's really good at this. It's actually better than people at predicting what's going to come next. Um, and when you're, you're talking to models like ChatGPT, Instead of predicting, it makes a prediction and then it just says the thing and then it just keeps talking. So when you start a story with it, it's just continuing the story. And if it's a story where you're arguing with it back and forth, it's gonna keep arguing because that's the story. If it's a story about how an AI system turns bad and kills everybody, it's gonna keep telling that story. So the problem though is we tend to anthropomorphize these systems. We think of them like people and they're not. And that means that we oftentimes are going to have a poor understanding for how they're going to function. Because while on the surface it looks like a person, under not, it's, underneath it's very, very different. For these chatbots, the really wild thing is it's not even a chatbot. Like not only is it not a person, it's actually not a chatbot. It's a text prediction model simulating being a chatbot, which is then simulating whatever the conversation you're having to it which is like kind of a couple levels of weirdness. And that all of this is a real obstacle when we think about how we're going to use these systems effectively. I think it's a major challenge. It's one that's going to be difficult for us in the next couple of years ahead. Man, are we ready for this? <laughs> I don't know if it was a good idea or a bad idea to have you. I, I, I can't yeah, tell you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I knew this was going to be good. You are a wealth of information. I want to give you a small token of our appreciation. And everyone, thank you very much again for coming tonight. We really hope to see you soon. Thank you.